Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks that Jesse March should take over at Southampton and Nathan Jones should take over at Leeds. We wouldn't keep either of them up, but it would be a funny ride as a neutral. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Giving Sport. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And I, I love the idea, as ludicrous as it was seeing all these stories about Jesse Marsh taking over at Southampton, the only thing I can imagine that would be more ludicrous would, would be Nathan <laughs> Jones taking over at, at Leeds. Um, or uh, indeed both at the same time. Well, yeah, I mean, both at the same time would be the, the all, truce. All of... I know is, like, I would be riveted to watching both Leeds' and Southampton seasons. Would that get them more seats sold? Um, you know, tickets sold? Would that get them more eyes on the TV? I think so, personally. Does that make it a good financial decision? Who's to say? I'm not the money guy. All I know is, all I know is, it's what I want. I, I think it would be really amusing for us, who are neither fans of Leeds nor Southampton, uh, but I don't think anyone who is a fan of either of those clubs would, would like that. Um, but we'll have time to talk oh, about... God, no. Um, no, no, I mean, a terrible move on either side, it would be. Absolutely. Well, we'll have time to talk about Nathan Jones uh, and Jesse Marsh by extension uh, when we talk about Southampton a little bit later on um, in the episode. But first, um, it was the Champions League night last night. It's Thursday, of course, at time of recording. Um, but most eyes were not on Chelsea versus Borussia Dortmund or the extremely eye-watering fixture of Bayern Munich versus PSG, at least in this country. Um, but here in the Premier League, looking at not a Champions League game, um, but a Premier League game, uh, Arsenal hosting Manchester City. Yeah, and it didn't disappoint. It was a pretty fiery game. Um, it was pretty action from from the get go. Uh, City grabbed it by by the horns after a Tomiyasu mistake early on, and managed to hold on and win three one um, after a brief period where Arsenal came back into the game with a, a penalty. Um, and I just want to broadly throw it to you. Now, to kind of kick off the, the conversation around this game, we can maybe talk about the game itself um, in, a, in a minute. But like, is this the end of Arsenal's, um, you know, title run? I was talking to uh, a friend of mine before it started, before the game started. And I said, I think that if Arsenal loses game, that's it. They're done. There was definitely a sense ahead of this game that whoever won this game would win the league. These two have sort of been the best two teams this season. Arsenal have been ahead of City sort of at every turn so far. Um, and then after sort of the recent stumble against Everton and Brentford, this was sort of a chance to re-extend their lead to six points or, or to lose it entirely. And City, of course, um, as you allude to there, are now top of the league. The elephant is down off the top of the tree. Um, well, and- with, with one more game played. With one more game played, and and Arsenal do have a game in hand, so it's key to note that. Although a lot of people have been talking about that, I don't really think that that's much of a thing, because as far as I'm concerned, you can essentially already count the game at the Etihad as a Manchester City win. I don't really (laughs) think, like, in in that sense, City have a game in hand themselves, and that sort of cancels them out. I mean, if anything, City's game in hand is more effective, because as far as I'm concerned, they've already won it, whereas Arsenal's game in hand, they could draw or lose it. Um... And the reason I say that, you know, you might think that's harsh because Arsenal did play well in this game for for large portions and maybe were unlucky to certainly lose by this margin or or maybe lose at all. Jack Grealish, you know, certainly thought that they didn't play as well. But it's 11 straight league defeats for Arsenal against Manchester City. Um, And that's quite a big stat. It's one of those stats that if you you sort of said, oh, side X has lost to side Y 11 times in a row, 
you would expect it to be, and no disrespect to these clubs, but one of the sort of comes up and comes down clubs, like a Norwich or a Burnley or, you know, Sheffield United maybe wouldn't be such a good one because they've only been up once in, in, in recent years. But, you know, a club of that ilk, not ostensibly a top six side. And even though Arsenal are sort of now side looking to kick on even from that, throughout the course of these 11 defeats, they have ostensibly been a top side. Um, and it is sort of quite notable that, you know, everyone else can get a result against Manchester City, even Spurs, who I think most Spurs fans would kill to be in Arsenal's position with their team right now, have managed to get at least five home wins in a row against Manchester City. Arsenal can never do it, home or away. And although the team is looking a lot better in a lot of senses at the moment this season, with a lot of strengths, every time they play Manchester City, you almost get the sense that the players from Arsenal treat it like they're kicking around the ball with their big brother and his friends in the back garden. Like, almost like it's a really big opportunity. And they're, oh, God, big bros, let yeah, me play yeah. with his friends. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, oh, God, scared. Oh, his friends, oh, they all they all look about 10 feet taller than me. Um, because, you know, <laughs> in, in a sense, Mikel Arteta said it himself. He he talked about Tommy Asu's back pass, as you mentioned there, the error to open the scoring for Manchester City. He said, uh, you know, he's been watching Tommy Asu for seven years and he's never seen him make that, make that pass. And... On the one hand, you know, that is sometimes just something that happens in these big games and errors do get forced. The better teams you play, that's just a fact of the game. But at the same time, 11 league losses in a row is endemic. You've got to look at that and go, this isn't just something that happens because you're playing a good team. Because statistically, especially in the Premier League, at least one in 10 times, you know, Burnley gets a result against Manchester City or Norwich gets a result against Manchester United. Everyone can be everyone is the whole sort of point of the league. And yet Arsenal, who are supposed to be one of the top teams in the league, can never quite do it against Manchester City, home or away. Yeah, it's got to be. It's a, it's a mindset thing. Um, it must be because, as you say, 11 in a row is not, um, you know, that that's not coincidence. That's a pattern of behaviour. Um, mm. And it's a shame, really, that we've basically seen their ceiling um, they've done great. They've had a really good season so far, but they still don't consider themselves worthy to beat Man City. And I think I think you can tell that at least Tommy Asso thinks that, um, you know, because he was so nervous and and he he felt like at least I, I agree with you that Arsenal felt like the smaller team um, playing with their big bro. It is also funny to me. I feel like if you look at their back four of Arsenal, Tommy Asso is probably the player that I would. I would put money on being the least likely to to make that kind of mistake. Definitely, mm-hmm. I would put Gabriel at the top of that list, um, and then probably Saliba, and then Zinchenko, and then Tomiyasu. Um, so you it's, know, it's, it's, I, I would have Zinchenko at the top, uh, but but regardless, as you were saying, yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, it, it's a real shame um, because he's such a such a good player, um, and I am a big fan of him. And he's obviously going to beat himself up for it. You got to give credit to Kevin De Bruyne as well. He obviously took it fantastically well um you know just a sliver of a chance on his weak foot just put it away first time no no hesitation and that really is the difference isn't it um and it's hard not to feel like the writing's on the wall for Arsenal's title hopes yeah and I think it's just one of those like for what it's worth uh, I, I concur with Jack Grealish I think that certainly especially in the first half Arsenal were the better team but you can only be the the better team so often and still lose, and that's okay. Like, if it happens a couple of times, 
he can go, well, you know, the game went against on the night. That Every single football fan of every single team in the world has watched a game where their team has been the better team, but they've lost. But at a certain point, you have to stop resting on that laurel because that is ultimately something that's not worth any points. Um, so <laughs> you can't always sort of sit back and go, well, we were the better team and, you know, maybe next time we'll get them because Arsenal have said that, you know, a number of times in a row and it, it's not yet come true. Um, I do think, you know, this is the difference between having, you know, I think Arsenal have been a very well drilled side this season, but what they've lacked um, in in sort of in terms of you know the top 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 level is having truly world class players. I think Erdegaard and Saka are well on their way to being there, and Erdegaard, I would say for the majority of this, this season, has been probably the best midfielder in the league. But you saw the difference here. You saw the difference between mm, having a world class player like Kevin De Bruyne because he can switch it on. And sort of a moment like that where it wasn't, you know, it was a big mistake by Tomiyasu. It wasn't an easy chance for Kevin De Bruyne by, by any no, stretch. No, no. It was on his no, week no, no. for a while out from goal and he, he hits it perfectly. And I think that's the difference between having players who are playing in world-class form and players who are world-class, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think um, I think De Bruyne is is like the literal definition of different gravy. Um, he just is in a, in a league of his own compared to any of the Arsenal's players, I would say. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's funny, isn't it? Um, it almost feels too perfect in terms of, of what we talked about uh, with Arsenal's form in January versus what they would be like in February because they hadn't lost a game in the Prem since before the World Cup and then um, cut to February starting and they've immediately dropped eight points of the last out of the last potential nine, um, losing to Everton. Um, drawing to Brentford and then and then losing to Man City at home, um, so it, it does feel like the wheels are starting to fall off. And you know they've they've had a great run, and I hope to God that I'm proved wrong. Um, you know they they've got a couple of winnable fixtures. Um, you know Villa, Leicester, Everton, Bournemouth, um, Fulham, tricky. They're all you know then definitely none of them are guaranteed, but potential bounce back. I think. And if they can keep winning games, they can maybe right the ship. But but personally, I think I think this is it. Yeah, I, I think the two big questions are: firstly, you know, when Gabriel Jesus is going to be back, and and what that impact is is going to have on on his return to the team. And secondly, you know, as you, as you mentioned there, there's a lot of quote unquote winnable games there. But the really big question about this result is not does this count for three points for City and no points for Arsenal? But is this the start of the mental crumble, the sort of downturn that we've seen from Arsenal so many times when the players stop believing in themselves, the football stops being as slick, all the great stuff that we've seen starts to fade away a little bit and that sort of mental rot starts to set in, the sort of almost not feeling like you're worthy to be sort of champions of the league. And as soon as that goes, you know, there's never been a team that's won the league that doesn't feel as they deserve to win the league. No. Um, any thoughts uh, that you'd like to share on Jorginho's debut in Arsenal colours? Uh, his his sort of his full debut, rather. I think it was his first start, but yeah, yeah. he'd he'd come his on. First start. Yeah. I thought he was actually quite good. Um, I thought that Thomas Partey was going to be a huge miss for them, and I think still, you know, the reverse fixture at the Etihad. I still think I think it's a City win, whichever way you slice it. But I think having Partey and Jesus available for that fixture will be a big difference. But no, I thought Jorginho was pretty good. I thought he had a couple of um couple of good passes, couple of good turnovers. He lost the ball one or two times um 
pretty badly but I think that's just what happens when you're playing against you know City was sort of essentially playing with this back three system to begin the game where Rodri was stepping into midfield and Haaland was dropping deep as well so they were essentially playing with like an eight-man midfield so I'm willing to give Jorginho who I'm not the biggest fan of the benefit of the doubt in being pressured to lose the ball a couple of times I think he was more good than bad and, and honestly probably Arsenal's best player in this game mm, it's, it's interesting because you know, when you look at a game, you look at the, just the pure stats of a game like this. City away, 40% possession, um, but five shots on goal to Arsenal's two. Um, Arsenal had 60% possession. It's, I, I, and, and the fact that they got overrun in midfield quite a lot. Um, I agree with you that Jorginho didn't really seem to put too many feet wrong, but it did feel like where Man City won this game was in the midfield. And it was by by overloading and by... Um, you know, hitting hard and quick. Um, and it, it's 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 good to see. It's almost interesting to see. I feel like it's a sign of of respect from Pep Guardiola to Mikel Arteta that Man City did not play their usual, like, you know, high, high pressure, high, um, sort of high pressure, high percentage of, of like um, possession um, mm. game. But instead they, they went for a smash and grab approach and it played perfectly into their hands because I think Arsenal did try and build up a little more slowly. Whether or not that's Jorginho or not, you know, I, I wouldn't wouldn't make any judgments. But um, yeah, I think Man City changed their tactics to suit the game and came out on top. They won the battle. I think there's there's two ways of looking at that, aren't there? If, if you're sort of if you're very optimistic about Arsenal, you can sort of say, well, I mean, look at this, Manchester City, the sort of unbeatable Manchester City, have had to come to to our ground and play sort of very respectfully and very cautiously, and look at them sort of playing with men behind the ball. This is how you know powerful we are now. People really have to worry about it. Or the other way is, you know, City <laughs> have adapted to the game and bested you. They they've adapted. Yeah, you've I mean- played the way you normally do, and you've lost the game. I don't think I would uh, have a lot of time for the former opinion um, if it was given to me in the pub, for example. Um, yeah. Ultimately, if you lose 3-1 with 60% possession, you're you're only uh, laughing at yourself. Um, and- well, it's, it, I, I would agree. And it's like one of my favourite sort of like uh, ongoing Twitter memes is like people will... Um, when sort of a, a group of other fans or the fans of a team that have lost will talk about sort of like the good points of their game, you'll see sort of like it'll be not even a Photoshop is too kind of way to do it. It'll sort of be like in almost Microsoft Paint. It'll be like to use this game as an example. It'll be like three one, but then the one will have sort of been drawn over with a four, and it'll be like ninety Saka dribbled really well. Ninety one Jorginho's <laughs> first yeah. start. Ninety four, <laughs> you know, William Saliba had a, has a great chant, and I, I I always love that meme, and I, I agree it. it it is always a bit sort of like when you see it's all it's always good to see your team play well but when you see fans patting themselves on the back after a loss you're a bit like come on guys yeah it's a shame because i mean we've talked about a little bit um you know the differences in style and tactics between man city and arsenal because obviously some of them are similar with arteta being heavily influenced by pep guardiola and the the main difference is being um you know arsenal typically try and move the ball quicker they try and um, burst forward. They use their their dynamic um, physical presence rather than their their passing ability through the middle. And it, it's a shame because that Arsenal would have had a better game against um, Man City than the Arsenal that we saw. And it, it's almost it's almost like City were playing Arsenal's game and did it better than them um, rather than 
you know, just adapting their tactics. They almost, mm. they almost kind of did Arsenal's thing better than them, um, which, which is interesting. Uh, it's almost a bit of a flex. Yeah, I also just thought there was a lack of willingness to be cutthroat. And it's interesting, sort of just looking at Arsenal's last few games, uh, specifically the Everton loss and the Brentford draw, I've been watching them and looking at sort of in the two games where they've been ineffective against Everton and Brentford, in, in my opinion, they've sort of failed to get Martin Odegaard involved in the game. And Martin Odegaard typically hangs to the right of the, sort of in the right half space and sort of doubles up with Bakayo Saka. It's been a really effective combination all season, but that's where they do a lot of damage. And, and I felt in those last two games, they failed to get the ball to Odegaard and sort of let him make his magic. And that's why they've lost in, in the case of Everton and, and drawn in the case of Brentford. What was ironic here was that they played all through the right, and that makes a lot of sense because, as I said, it's been a very effective combination. But you had a situation where Kyle Walker, 34 minutes in, has picked up a yellow card. Surely that's when you go all in down the left side and have Alexander Zinchenko and Gabriel Martinelli twisting his blood for the next 60 minutes, you know, knowing that he can't commit to a risky tackle or letting him commit to that risky tackle and then playing against 10 men. It almost showed a lack of willingness to sort of change the game plan based on circumstances, as if they'd sort of sat in the tactics room before the game, gone, this is our game plan, and that was what they rigidly stuck to without any sort of, you know, ability to react to stimuli within the game. Yeah, I agree. I think you're bang on. Um, and again, it's experience. It's it's being able to react in game um, rather than, you know, just meticulously planning ahead in advance. Um, and yeah, I think um, it was men against boys to, to I guess, uh, hit us, hit you with a catch. Uh, what's it called? It with a cliche. Um, quite a funny uh, tweet I saw, which cracked me up, um, which said, um, Arsenal behaves like apple juice. It wants to be alcohol, but it's too shy. Yeah, a, a, a little bit true, yeah. I mean, this is certainly the case with this team in in this game, but we've seen a lot of Arsenal teams that look like this. They get just up to the edge of going, could we do something special? And and, and that's when it sort of goes down. I, I want to talk about one player in particular, because it's a player that you've mentioned a couple of times and a player who's sort of been relevant since the window closed. Um, Eddie Nketiah, um, I think, could have had two goals in this game, maybe three, um, if you sort of think about the, the cross he could have made it to as well, but two headers that he connected with and, and didn't even test the keeper. Um, you'd have to say that a better striker in that situation at least gets a goal and maybe gets a hat-trick on, on his best possible day. And it, it really does beg the question. Arsenal spent all this time during the January window running around after Michaela Mudrick for 70, 80, 85 million, whatever it was, when they already had Sacra Martinelli. They then spent all this time at the end of the window chasing after Moises Caicedo when, I think he would have been a great signing, that deal never looked like it was really on, and they do have a starter, at least for the time, they didn't in this game, but at the time of trying to purchase it, they had Thomas Partey available. Gabriel Jesus is injured. They knew that during the January window. They knew they had to play City and, and, and Brentford, for example, are another really solid team and a number of difficult teams. Why was one of the big purchases that they were, you know, they clearly had this war chest. Why were they not looking at a striker? I agree. And, and we talked about the fact that they needed to sign a striker and even the fact that Leandro Trossard, the signing of Trossard would make way for them to be able to sign not a striker slash winger, but a mm -hmm. pure out-and-out -out number nine. And I'm pretty sure we talked at one point about the fact that if they don't sign someone who is worthy of a title running season, then they will not win the title. And I think that that has that outlook, that perspective has already been vindicated. Um, they could and should have signed a, a player that they didn't. 
and yeah. they're already looking like the weaker side for not having done so. And, and look, Gabriel Jesus will be back and it'll be interesting to see how Arsenal respond to this. It is key to note that we're sort of, maybe just because of the evidence of the last six or seven years, we're looking at this City side now that they are going to take confidence from this win and kick on and do their usual spiel of winning 14 games in a row. Um, they might not. Man City have not been the Man City this season that we always know. They have been, you know, liable to concede goals even when they're winning. Um They've been vulnerable to, to sort of games. You know, we sort of chastise Arsenal for, for losing to Everton uh, under Sean Dyche, but Man City drew to Everton under Frank Lampard. So they're not the infallible sort of super team that we always think of, at least so far this season. They could turn it around and, and become that. Um, so it's not completely over for Arsenal, but you do get no, the thought no, it's not. that it could be a big mischance because as much as Arsenal are a very young team and you... You know, you'd have to imagine that players like Bakayo Saka and Martin Erdegaard and Gabriel Martinelli are only going to get better over time. They'll probably be better next season and better the season after that. It reminds me a lot of the Leicester City season when they won the league, which was another season where so many top teams kind of fell away. And I kind of feel like we're going to be sat here next season. Liverpool aren't going to be this bad next season. Chelsea, with all their signings and probably a heat more to come in summer, aren't going to be this bad next season. Manchester United already are really getting their act together and are probably going to be in the mix next season. You could be, you know, as at the end of the Leicester season when Arsenal finished second, I really do think we could be sat here next season with Arsenal sort of struggling, you know, fist fighting Spurs to try and finish fifth or maybe even sixth if Newcastle are in the mix. Um, and you go, wow, that was the year, wasn't it? That was really the year where they could have done it and they failed to pull the trigger. Look, I, I think, yeah, we're being very critical of Arsenal. I think it's it's fair to because they've raised our expectations this much, but but they really did try and have it all too soon. I mean, this this run of form was incredible, but it wasn't. I don't think it was ever going to be maintainable. Um, and you know, you can't just suddenly become an incredible team. It doesn't really happen. Um, no, you know, no, when, no. I agree, but sides, I, think, I think part of that is what I was mentioning. Form, there is an equal and opposing trough that comes afterwards when when they run out of form, and they're not in a trough by any means. I think. They've had a couple of bad results, but it just feels like City are so good that you can't really afford to make many mistakes. And I think Arsenal have maybe one more mistake and and they're done. Um, and I think that they will make that mistake. I think they will drop more points um, and City will be waiting. But, you know, you've still got to give credit to the job being done by Mikel Arteta. It's fantastic. Um, I mean, no one expected, even in November, that they would be um, still fighting in the in the title race. Um, so, you know, I think it's tough because they are the victims of their own success. But we've got to treat them like the title contenders that they have have carved themselves into. If that makes sense. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree. And look, football fans have the shortest memory of any people in the world. I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying that. You know, if we had started this season and you had said to pretty much any Arsenal fan, "You're going to finish second, guaranteed," they'd have they'd have snapped your hand off um, because this is a team that finished eighth, eighth, and fifth and missed out on the Champions League last season, and has sort of perennially been sort of prone to sort of not. I don't think they've played in the Champions League since 2016. Um, so yeah, absolutely, they, they'd snap your hand off, and you know, with all the things that qualify for the Champions League brings you, access to better players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's just that it's come through this way where they have had the better part of <laughs> six months to feel like they are a top, top team that could win it all. And and you know, maybe that could still be true, but it's now all sort of coming crashing down. And and as you say, 
uh, you know, you don't become a top team overnight, but you, you can become a pretty good team overnight. And if that ha- so happens to happen at the same sure. time that all the other top teams decide to stop being top teams, which has been the case with Liverpool and Chelsea and to a degree Manchester City themselves, then you can sort of, you know, it, that happened to Leicester. Leicester are a prime example, not to take anything away from their title winning season, but they won it with what, 82 points? That wouldn't be enough to win the league in any of the last five seasons. It was just a year when all the top teams fell away. And and this may have been Arsenal's chance to have a Leicester season. And it could still be. Um, But I fear they might have have, have lost that chance now. Yeah, and I also think City are comfortably better and better performing than any of Leicester's title contenders. Um, But yeah, you're right. It, 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 It felt like this could have been the year to do it. But, you know... The build is still happening. As you say, these players are still gaining experience. They're so young, um, a lot of these these Arsenal stars. So, you know, they've still got an amazing future ahead of them, hopefully at Arsenal. Um, it's definitely not the end of the road, but it might well be the end of, of this season's title run in a month or two's time. If they have lost another game or two, if they have drawn a couple more, then then yeah, I think um, I think that's it. And, and you did well, you you know, exceeded everyone's expectations and you should be congratulated for that. Um, but you have to be a really good side to be even even a city that doesn't look as imperious as normal. Yeah, I, I think that's about right. Well, that's the big top of the table clash. Um, lots more to look forward to there um, in terms of the title race as it continues. Let's n- let, let, let's look next, rather. Let's look next at Manchester United, um, who this week have been uh, all over the news and last week as well for the sort of um, the big interest in them being up for sale. Um, so Jim Ratcliffe um, has been one bidder who's been interested. He's been interested in, in them for a while. Um, and so too has the Qatar Investment Authority, um, who are, of course, a Qatari sovereign wealth fund, um, who are seemingly the only people capable of meeting the £6 billion asking price. Um, but it, it's caused an interesting discussion, Um for those sort of not so familiar with with UEFA regulations, um, the rules state that no two clubs owned by the same entity may compete in the same competition. Um, So, for example, uh, Manchester United and uh, PSG, who are also owned by a Qatari entity, um, might not be able to compete in the Champions League uh, if indeed the two entities are the same. Um, But the Qatar Investment Authority, the company that wants to buy at Manchester United, claim they're independent of Qatar Sports Investment, (laughs) who own PSG. Now, this is something that we've seen the Premier League and UEFA struggle with before, a little bit of smoke screening, a little bit of finagling, um, you know, certainly with the whole PIF buying Newcastle and them claiming they had no association with the state of of, of Saudi Arabia um, (laughs) and and things like that. Um, Here, the chairman of Qatar Sports Investments, uh, the company that is PSG, sits on the board of Qatar Investment Authority, who are the company that wanted by Manchester United. So it's not even really hidden that well. Um, although something tells me if Premier League have previous, they might still be able to get through. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the thing. Like, you you say that they it's not hidden very well, but like, historically, it's not needed to be hidden very well. Like, in theory, this is this is like... <laughs> the right amount of, of cloak and dagger for the Premier League to be like, oh, 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 okay. No, fair enough. Um, mm. So, you know, I feel like, I feel like it's par for the course. Um, it's standard that they would be hiding in plain sight. It's standard that the Premier League could potentially uh, find themselves fairly oblivious to 
what is in fact right in front of them. So I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if um, if it went ahead. It's going to make for some interesting um, conversations. I think that, you know, more and more clubs, big clubs getting bought out. But ultimately, football is becoming too big to be anyone's game other than a multi-billionaire. And well, not, not even that, the multi-billionaires, really. It's, it's, it's the nation states increasingly. Well, I mean, I think I think anyone with with ten billion can do it, but but a lot of those people are um, multi-state nation states. Sorry, so yeah, you're right. They are increasingly getting bought out by states because um, I think for a lot of people, it's getting too rich for their blood. Even if even if you do have that much money, because I think the amount of people that can have like a millionaire's plaything, like for example, Roman Abramovich's Chelsea. Is is so significantly high, much higher than the amount of people that can have a billionaire's plaything, and if if it's not a plaything, then it's something with a business idea behind it, or or a more cynical idea behind it, such as perhaps a lot of nations that look to use sports to uh, legitimise a lot of their behaviour. So, you know, I think that. Football clubs do not historically make a lot of money. So if I'm a billionaire, if I'm a multi-billionaire, unless I have so much money that dropping five billion on a big club means absolutely nothing to me, there is no business sense for me to buy a big club. Like, the, what would be the point? Manchester City, like, year on, year out, like, make three million, lose five million? That's nothing compared to the actual value of the, of the, the um, you know, the entire company. So... There's no business sense for owning a club these days. And and the the amount of people that can buy them is, is very small. Yeah, although <laughs> I, I would point out that I think a big part of the reason that there is no business sense in owning the clubs unless you have massive capital is sort of because of the initial massive... like. That's that's how it starts. In much the same way, we look at sort of like the window and how sort of transfer prices have spiraled out of control uh, because of sort of people like Chelsea coming in and spending crazy money. So too have things like wages spiraled out of control and sort of like operational budgets spiraled out of control and the amount of sort of you know sponsorship you need, the amount of sort of broadcasting money you need to come in. All of that spiraled out of control because of these initial investments creating uh, in, in a sense a closed shop uh, for those who want to sort of participate with a, a smaller amount of money. If you ask any Liverpool fan, they'll, they'll tell you the same. While that's true, the two most valuable clubs in the world are Barcelona and Real Madrid. Barcelona, um, you know, are, are a failing club. Real Madrid have had many, many financial troubles over the years. Uh, and while I agree that a lot of that is, is potentially related to trying to compete with, um, you know, hyper um, money across Europe... Um, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I, the I, tricky I, thing is that football is so influential that you know it's always going to become this. Yeah, it's always going to become I, I just, something just, that that is is used. I just don't think, and this, this is a whole other conversation. I mean, we we're talking about sort of Manchester United and whether he next with new owners, but I, I just don't think whether it's you know. England or Spain, and I know Spain and Real Madrid have, have a sort of a, a relationship in, 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 in that sort of ilk almost, but like whether it's England or Spain, and I, I don't think this is a conversation about the Middle East uh, or, or China or, or anyone else. I just don't think that any country should own a football club. 
because there's already national football. I just think that there's already that distinction. And obviously, when you start to bring countries into things, beyond the fact that there's all sorts of like weird soft power, um, you know, involvement, whatever country that might be, I for one wouldn't want, you know, <laughs> Boris Johnson <laughs> by Manchester United to become prime minister <laughs> again. Um, you know, I, I just think it, it becomes no longer a game about people kicking the ball around. It becomes like who can funnel the most of the, the national budget into winning a league, which is obviously not what it's about. Yeah, you're right. And I think um, I think Chelsea was is the original sin. Um, and, and maybe as soon as that was allowed to go through, everything else after that became fair game. Um, but it's... Yeah, it's a shame. Um, but but then the flip side is, you know, money money buying um, wins is not a new idea. You know, Manchester United at the start of of the um, the Premier League back in like ninety two ninety three, they were they were the highest spending club around. Um, so you know, I think there's always been obviously a relationship between money spent and um, club success, and I think that the more you get people trying to buy into that success and trying to buy into being a part of football, you know, it, it will just naturally spiral. Yeah, and I agree. And it, it's a difficult conversation because, you know, with the example of someone like Manchester United in their current state, it, well, maybe maybe before City sort of come in, but this is a great example. It's like success breeds success. So when you have a club that are as successful as Manchester United, they're always going to have a massive fan base and massive commercials, sort of partners who are sort of coming in to go, well, you're a massive club, so we want to have our you know company aim across the front of your shirt and we're willing to pay way more. And then that breeds more money for the club, which in turn breeds more success. So it can be difficult for anyone to get a foothold. So in that sense, in a sort of weird way, you could argue that it's healthy having a Manchester City or a Chelsea coming in to sort of upend the 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 sort of status quo. I just think what it's done now has created this situation where realistically deep down a lot of fan bases just want their clubs to be taken over by the richest bidder and it's no longer about being able to develop talent sure. or being able to sort of like have have the sort of local players come in and and represent their their club. I mean we saw this a couple of months ago when there were rumours about FSG, um, and, and I, I'm not trying to tar all Liverpool fans with the same brush, but when there were rumours that FSG were going to sell up, uh, I think also to, to QSI, there were loads of Liverpool fans who have spent the better part of the last seven years sort of decrying Manchester City as oil cheats, being like, well, yeah, no, but it's fine for us. And I, I'm, I'm sure that pretty much every club would have the same you know, subsection of fans who would say the same thing. So I'm not just sort of bashing on Liverpool fans, and it's just... It's just a bit of a shame because it's it's no longer then about anything but who has the biggest wallet, which is like, we can all sit and look at a chart of which country has the highest GDP. That's not really as entertaining as the sport that we all love. Yeah. And I, for one, also think it would be, it would be so interesting to see. Uh, I mean, obviously this is so, so hypothetical, but I would be so interested to see a, a league in which everyone had the same budget and it's literally just about tactics and getting the right people in and um you know i i would i would love that um but i, I don't know what the answer is um it feels like feels like football's a bubble um and at some point it's going to burst um but what will be that 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 turning point um you know whether or not it's it's the European Super League starting up again and everyone just turning around and going, you know what, we're done with top flight football. 
um, whether or not it's it's the fact that tickets get so expensive that all of the like the 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 real proper every weekend fans um, are are priced out of the game, and at that point, football loses its soul, and and there's like a a crisis of identity. I, I don't know what it'll be, but it feels like at some point something's going to have to give. Well, maybe, maybe this is the sort of reasoning behind the uh, the revived Super League plans that sort of reared their head, and, and not one necessarily to get into now because uh, it's still sort of very much in the infantile stages. But uh, a new uh, a new bid from the uh, the the villains over at A twenty two, or perhaps heroes, mm. depending on where you sit. Uh, not in my opinion, though. Um, sort of who are looking mm. to sort of revive these Super League plans with a new sort of format. Um, but before we get, it's into... never fully gone away. You're right. It's, there's always it been will. a couple of a couple of clingers on. I don't think it ever will, as long as there's you know, as long as you look at some of these, uh, you know, clubs in other leagues who are sort of looking over at the Premier League and sort of going, well, how are we in a world where the Nottingham Forest of this world can overbid Atletico Madrid for a, for a player, um, or you know, a Burnley can offer a sort of more competitive wage structure than you know a Borussia Dortmund. Um, then it, it probably won't ever go away, but um, you know, we, we'll see. For now, mm. a bit, a bit of useless sure. trivia, um, a little bit of jovial uh, nonsense to brighten <laughs> ourselves up after that very glum peer into football's future. I've got a little one for you this week, Rupert. Uh, a little bit of a football anecdote about a cult classic, uh, legendary hard oh, man, uh, legendary hard man footballer, I should say, Duncan Vinnie Ferguson. He's in the news because he has recently become manager of Forest Green Rovers, uh, which has, of course, prompted all sorts of jokes around sort of vegans and <laughs> Scottish people and, and things of that nature. Uh, for those unaware, sure. the League One side have been the world's first vegan football club since 2015 uh, and have a number of eco-friendly initiatives. Uh, and Duncan Ferguson is a Scot. Um, so for those who are not based in Britain as we are, um, notoriously uh, jibed at for, you know, not being very vegan-friendly. And, and, and sort of <laughs> much more in the uh, deep fried Mars bar category. My name is Cameron McDonald. I have Scottish heritage. I'm not bashing on my own people. <laughs> um, it kind of feels like you are. <laughs> but did you know that Big Dunk, as he's affectionately known, was the first footballer ever to be jailed for an on field offence? Uh, this came after, in a game, uh, he headbutted Wraith Rovers' John McStay uh, in a game that took place in 1994, which saw him earn a three month prison sentence. I think I did know that, you know. I think I had come across that at some point, but I mean, still, what a wild, what a wild thing that is, and the fact that he's he's still happily working in football um, is is funny to me for sure. Um, it is one of those. That a... It always surprised me that you don't see more often that, as if there's almost some sort of rule, like in any other place of work. I get football's a contact sport, but like in any other place of work, if you are so incensed with someone because they didn't email you what you agreed on time, and you swing a punch <laughs> at the back of their head, you are fired and go to jail. Whereas in a lot of sports, you can do the same thing because you're incensed, incensed with essentially a colleague. Um, and that's fine. Yeah. Or like a um a competing a competing company. Sure, yeah. <laughs> a competitor. Um yeah, yeah, hey, you're right. You're right. Um and it's you know, it's it's rare that people get charged for assault. So um I, I don't I think I've come across it before, but I don't think I've ever watched the um I've ever watched the footage, but it must have been pretty bad. 
<laughs> I believe it was quite bad. Uh, bad enough to sort of break the unwritten rule that assault is allowed as long as it happens in the field of play. That's so funny. Um, uh, so my piece of useless trivia um, that I saw recently was quite a funny coincidence um, surrounding Neil Warnock, who has just come out of retirement to take over at Huddersfield. Um, did you know uh, that... Um, at present, obviously, Neil Warnock is managing Huddersfield and Gianluigi Buffon has returned to his uh, boyhood club, Palmer. The last time Gigi Buffon was at Palmer and Neil Warnock was at Huddersfield, you ask? 28 years ago in 1995, both of them at their respective clubs. Good God, all, all, all pigeons return home eventually <laughs> to, to, to roost, I suppose. Is that a saying? <laughs> they sure do. What a, it's something like that. I mean, firstly, bizarre coincidence. Secondly, what incredible longevity, not just from Neil Warnock as the manager, but Gigi Buffon, a 28-year career to date, still going. Mm. Yeah, very, very impressive on both accounts. And you wonder, I think Neil Warnock's 74 or 75. Like, when when's he going to finish? He's 74, yeah, you're right. Um, hey, who knows? Who knows? I mean, how old is Roy Hodgson? Is he still, is he still kicking around? Yeah, he's not so managing, though. I think Roy is 76, maybe, and I think he's finished. Do you know what's funny is, I definitely think of Roy Hodgson as being way older than Neil Warnock. Uh, You're right, he's only, he's only a year older, he's 75. 75, there you go. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I, I get what you mean, yeah, maybe it's the stress of the England job has <laughs> added like a decade onto him. <laughs> maybe. Let's talk next about uh, one of the most surprising uh, results of the weekend. Leicester City, who have been so very, very shaky this season uh, against the Spurs side that have, to be fair, also been quite shaky this season. But certainly you would have thought would have had enough to, to beat this Leicester side. Um, but it was not the case. Uh, Leicester put four past Spurs um, and absolutely dominated them. Let, let, let's talk about this game for a second because I was shocked as it was happening and shocked afterwards to think about it and I didn't really understand what I'd watched. <laughs> um, in what sense? In that like, you just couldn't imagine before the game started that it would go that way or that you couldn't understand like the actual performance on the pitch from from Tottenham. Um, what was the what was the the point that got you? I just don't really understand how you go from besting Manchester City to losing four one to Brendan Rodgers Leicester. I think um, I mean look, what I find really funny about this Tottenham um and look, I'm not the biggest fan of Tottenham Hotspur FC, and, and so I apologize um to any Tottenham fans listening. But what I find funny is that. Obviously, loads of jokes have been made about how Tottenham just don't have a winning mentality. And and you contrast that with Antonio Conte, who I think a lot of people would argue is one of the most ride-or-die managers out there, you know, in terms mm. of, of really trying to instill a, a fighting spirit in his team. And it, it almost felt a little bit like, um, you know, when an, an immovable object meets a, an unstoppable force, and what would what would happen really? Who would give way first? Would it in fact be Conte's fighting spirit, his will to win, or would it be Tottenham's, um, I guess, gooey gooey will mid- to lose um, and will to lose? Yeah, exactly. And and what seems to have been the case is that it's really like a, a coin gets flipped, uh, or even maybe I would go so far as to say Conte demands that his players perform well in some games, and then. Like like that game against Man City, 
And then afterwards, the players are so exhausted, not just physically, but mentally, from having to go through what is what is ostensibly a new experience for them, that they then just collapse again. You, you, you might be right, to be honest, because it is just insane. Like, you look at those teams, it's like, Harry Kane has, you know, managed to absolutely, you know, dominate, a, you know, a City bat line. Uh, although it was a slightly different bat line than I think they had last season. I think it was Akanji and, and Ake who weren't the, the typical. I mean, Akanji didn't even sign for them yet. Um, but yeah, he, he scored there and then he couldn't do it against Wout Fass and um, Harry Sudar. <laughs> um, or conversely, at the other end of the pitch, you had sort of... Um, you know the the Leicester forwards who've been all over the place this season, sort of some up, some down. Um, but then they managed to score against Spurs, whereas City's front line, including Haaland, couldn't. Um, I do think it's interesting actually what's happening with Leicester. It seems like Hiernacho is finally getting a good run um, through the middle. He's always sort of been pushed wide to accommodate Jamie Vardy, and Jamie Vardy is getting on a lot. I mean, he's been getting on for a while now, but I think he's getting on now to the point where he is he is maybe a little bit finished. Um, and it looks like Brendan Rodgers has finally accepted that it's time to look into Hiernacho as, as the out-and-out striker, and he's been doing really, really well um, and, and did exactly that in this game. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's a good point. Um and you know, we talk about Tottenham um failing here and and struggling and their key players um underperforming like Harry Kane and also Eric Dyer in the middle of that um defense having a, a really bad game. Pedro Porro was was really bad um as a new signing. No one really performed at all, but Madison great game, Harvey Barnes great game. Ayanacho as you say is starting to get a consistent run. Um, Christensen played well, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of lesser players coming, you know, turning up, um, to be counted. And maybe this is a turning point in their season. Um, historically Leicester do not have the best, um, run-ins towards the end of the year, but maybe, you know, this is, this is the reverse of the norm because normally they have a pretty good start to the year and they haven't had that. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's exactly true. So maybe it is a reverse and Leicester will end up finishing uh, in, in the top six, which would be uh, certainly quite amusing. Um, let's, well, not necessarily finish, sure but let's, let's, let's come back to where we started. Um, you talked about uh, Yank Lampard potentially getting the job at Southampton, but how could Yank Lampard get the job at Southampton when it's already been well, uh, I, I said, um, I think, by, I, think uh, I said Jesse March. <laughs> well, this is one and the same. Uh, <laughs> Yank Lampard. <laughs> Who? Okay, how... <laughs> Next question, next question, Cam. Who do you think is more likely, would be more likely, if it was down to both of them, only you had to pick one of the two, Frank Lampard dressed as Jesse Marsh or Jesse Marsh dressed as Frank Lampard? Uh, well, well, no, I, I wasn't saying Frank Lampard. I was saying his uh, delightful nickname from Leeds fans. Oh, Yank Lampard. Yank Lampard. Of course. <laughs> I forgot that meme. Yeah, my bad, my bad. Run it back. No, no worries. Go back we're to all... what you were doing. Say what you were going to say. I apologise. I'll stop cutting. We're all friends here. Uh, but yeah, Yank Lampard, how could he be considered for the Southampton job when Nathan Jones has been doing just such a stellar <laughs> job um, and, you know, getting result after result? Um, well... Southampton uh, conspired to do some of the most Nathan Jones type stuff. Um, they went 1-0 up, uh, which you might be thinking doesn't sound very Nathan Jones. And then on 27 minutes, <laughs> Mario Lamina uh, was sent off for Wolves uh, for running up to the referee. A very controversial second yellow. Um, but whatever your thoughts on that, Southampton were 1-0 up with an hour to play. And they, uh, they were against 10 men. And they conspired to lose 2-1. <laughs> uh, only Nathan Jones uh, could mastermind a result of this magnitude and, of course, was justly sacked uh, as a result of failing at home to sort of win, <laughs> even given, like, a leg up. Um, 
just just not a great game for them. And I think this experiment, you know, it's been three months. Uh, I, well, uh, firstly, I want to throw you the question. Worst manager in Premier League history? Question mark. He's got some tough competition. Frank De Boer would be sort of like the the immediate one you would throw to our, you know, otherwise mm. the sort of four games of Crystal Palace in the league, all four games lost. And they sat, to, it was so bad, they were just like sat to four, after four games. I think maybe Nathan Jones has been even worse. I think I think it's certainly the worst appointment of all time. I don't know what they were thinking. Whereas Frank De Boer, you can at least go, okay, it didn't work out, but you can see what they were aiming for there. Whereas Southampton already in trouble getting the Luton manager in. I, what What really were you expecting? Well, this is the thing. I mean, like, I, 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 I feel like I'm in my old age, perhaps growing more boring. But I just feel like if you're floundering and you need a new manager in the middle of the season, or, or like anything that's not at the start of the season, you don't go with someone that isn't a guarantee to keep you up. Like, it's just not. It's just not smart. Um, now, what what I will say is, I feel like, you know, I, I think that. Southampton's problems go far beyond just the the pitch, and I think that you know a couple of a couple of points um, where they've gotten rid of players. The the most notable one that I'm thinking of is um, Pierre Emil Hoiberg in their midfield, who is really really important to their entire um, you know game plan strategy. And they don't replace him with with anyone nearly the same or, or of the same caliber. And I think Southampton have consistently removed their best players and not sufficiently replaced them. And and this is what happens: you have a side that underperforms because the best parts have been cut out of it. Um, so you know, I, I do think Nathan Jones is is he's not covered himself in glory, obviously, but I think that you know it's a hard job for anyone to come in and and be manager of this side because they you know they're struggling and they don't have a lot of support um off the pitch in in the boardroom um so you know i can't remember what your question was sorry what, what, was he the worst appointment it was the worst premier league manager ever uh oh he's he's got to be up there he's got to be he's got to be top 10 top 5 probably Top um, ten. I mean, that, that, that's you're doing. You kind of sacked after three months. I think he's top two, and he's not number two. <laughs> <laughs> top two and not two. I, I, I think he's top five. I would want to. I would want to go away and make a comprehensive review of of the the worst managers before I made uh, made any sort of grand statement. But he's not been great. He's really not been great. It was interesting. I saw I saw an interview with um, Ashley Williams. Um, uh, obviously, you know Wales defender played at Swansea for a long time. Played at Stoke, uh, and, and he played at Stoke when Nathan Jones took over as Stoke manager. And he had this sort of really interesting discussion. So Nathan Jones was um, before he was Luton manager going to Southampton. He was Luton manager going to Stoke. So he went Luton to Stoke, uh, lost the job at Stoke, went back to Luton, and then stayed there until he got the the, the sort of uh, job at Southampton. Um, and Ashley Williams told this really interesting story about how when Nathan Jones took the job over, Stoke were relatively newly relegated. And as a result, they had a number of the players who they'd still had in the Premier League. He was going, look, it was a squad that should have 
no disrespect to everyone else in the championship, easily walked. We had several Champions League winners in, in, in the squad. And, you know, you remember that Stoke team that had the likes of Boyan and not sure if Arnautovic sure. was still there, but they had a, a, a lot of those players, you know, Boyan, Mark, Mark Munezer, I think was one of them. Um, and they had a number they of players. They had like six different Champions League winners at one point, didn't they? At one point, yeah, but by the time they they're at this stage, I think they still had you know two or three, and and you know certainly a number of players. Ibrahim Afalai might have still been there, but a number of experienced Premier League players as well. And Ashley Williams mm. sort of talked about it. And he was like, "The thing is, like, we had all this experience, and then Nathan Jones came in, and it was almost sort of like he was like defensive about how inexperienced he was relative to us, almost as if like he was coming in and sort of every time he'd be like." oh, well, you know, at Luton, we used to do this. And Nashville Williams was going, well, don't tell us what you used to do. Tell us what you want to do now. And he kind of used the example of, like, himself and Ryan Shawcross. And he was like, you know, I played at Swansea. We played a lot more sort of, like, possession-based football you know, from the back. Whereas at Stoke, they like to play long ball. I'm not saying either one's right or wrong, but... We just wanted to know from Nathan, like we're centre-backs with disparate styles, which one would you like our team to play? Because left to our own devices, we're going to play completely disparate styles and that's not going to be a coherent way to play football. Um, yeah. And, and, and to hear him tell it, Nathan Jones was just very much like almost afraid to, you know, or felt himself sort of unworthy to impose his thoughts on these players that he'd seen on TV in the Premier League every week. And these are actually Williams words, not mine. Um, and as a result, was unable to get anything out of these players because as most top level players will tell you, you can be fantastic players, but without good management, you know, you need someone to tell you the direction to do things and how you'd like to play left to your own devices. You're just 11 guys in disharmony and you need someone who's able to bring them together, even if you feel like you're not the, the guy. And he sort of posited that this was probably the same thing that happened to Nathan Jones at Southampton. He's come into a Premier League job. He's probably looked around. Uh, and I, I disagree. I think there is a lot of weaknesses in Southampton squad, but I think there's a lot of promise there. I think there's some really really exciting players and I think he's maybe looked at that and gone Christ I've accepted this job and I mean this is what we always talk about you don't hear it so much in jobs like manager but I'm sure it must apply you know people talk about imposter syndrome and it feels like Nathan Jones has sure. that as a manager uh, certainly based on this you know this one story admittedly but the story I've heard from from Ashley Williams um which I think lines up with what we've seen from his time at Southampton and he was just all over the place there were things like Ainsley Maitland-Niles being played at centre-back and then his last game he was played at right wing or you know formations mm -hmm. changing all the time not knowing your best 11 not knowing the players you wanted to start not knowing the, the, the consistency and, and sort of also of how to use signings or anything like that it just seemed like it was all over the place at all times and you almost sort of you know you, you want to say Nathan fake it till you make it and I fear he won't get a chance like this again because off the strength of his Southampton managing, he's probably not going to get a Premier League job. Um, so unless he goes back to Luton, who I think are doing all right at the moment, so probably won't hire him back, um, he's going to be a little bit out at sea. Yeah, well, look, I think you're talking about what sounds like a manager who is in free fall, doesn't know what he's doing. But I think that in some ways, I almost feel like Southampton deserved him because the club has been in free fall. I mean, if, if you look at the players that left this season, right? I'll, I'll, literally, I'll list them, okay? Oriol Romeu left for like 5 million. Nathan Redmond, free transfer. Fraser Forster, free transfer. Shane Long, free transfer. Jan Bednarek, gone for an undisclosed fee. That is the literal spine of Southampton. Those are all of the top, the key players in the dressing room, apart from James Ward-Prowse, that, that have all left in one season, in one window. 
It's no wonder they're they've, they're lost at sea. They've lost all of their experienced players. They've lost all of the players that know what it's like to to play for Southampton, the club, rather than just for the current manager. So I just think that it's all it's all wrong. Southampton have have neutered themselves, and they've got a manager in that did the same. Yeah, I think that's true. Although there are, you know, a couple of considerations to to be taken into account. Like, you know, Benrick is back there. I think he was on loan and then recalled. Um, and and you've well, got so you know, weird though. Why why was he? He's their I, best centre back. It, it it is a weird one. Well, he he, he was their best centre back for a while. But I think there's been some good recruitment. Although it's recruitment that needed the right person to shape them. I think Gavin Bazunu is a really promising goalkeeper. I think Salisu, as we saw many times last season, is a really promising centre back. You've got someone like um, Romeo Lavia, who I think. Do they get him from Manchester City or do they get him from somewhere else? But he used to play in Manchester City's academy. It's, it's one of the two. Um, and, and I think they've yeah, got, I think you're right. you know, quite quite a few players who know how to play football or, or who certainly who look like they know how to play football and it just needs the right manager. Um, and I think Hasenhutl had his ups and downs and maybe it was the right time for him to go. But then to bring in someone like Nathan Jones just feels like you've got your future and you're not even really gambling on your future. You're throwing the dice down the drain. Yeah, no, it's true. And look, they did, they did, they have spent quite a lot of money um, over the course of the year. I think it's just that you can't just replace like for like a bunch of players that that have a really long-standing figures in the dressing room. It never works. Literally, well, find me a club where that's worked. Well, you, you say it never works, and getting rid of loads of players at the same time never does work. But when you have you know older players replaced by young players. You know, if you get good results, people call it clearing out the rot. If you get bad results, people say you've lost all the leaders in your dressing room. And and Lord knows there are plenty of examples. You know, Liverpool are a great example at the moment of holding on to yesterday's players for one or two seasons too long. Um, so I, I think the speed at which they let those all those players go and the time at which they let them go was bad. But I, I do think that there were some promising signings there. And with the right manager, um, they could have started to rebuild well um, and, you know, may have gone down in the Premier League. Like I, I just don't think that this aside is a side that is the worst in the Premier League, and that's where they are on the table. Um, I think they may have sort of. I would finished, agree with that. I, I agree with you there. I think they may have finished, you know, sixteenth or seventeenth, and just hung on, and then had a chance to kick on next season. Or maybe they even would have gone down, but they are decisively the worst team in the league right now, and I don't think that their squad reflects that. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I just think that they've been really let down and the worst case scenario is that you'll see players like for example Salisu uh, is the big one in, in my mind who have sort of had enough time to prove that they're good enough to be in the Premier League who now mm-hmm. if Southampton go down and then it's like they will will just be snapped up by other teams who stay in the Premier League um, and Southampton will have not only lost the chance to rebuild while they're in the Premier League but lost the chance to develop those players at all yeah yeah look I, I think you're right that maybe a different manager would have um, done things differently and maybe he would have kept them up and maybe that would have allowed the side enough time to rebuild. Um, I, I'm, You might well have a good answer for this, but I'm racking my brain to think of a time where kind of clearing out all of the, the older players or or the majority of, of the older players in the dressing room has, like, has worked well in the short term. Um, maybe you could... <laughs> There's Sorry, one example. There's one example, but it's not really yeah, a please. fair example. 
It's when Pep, Pep Guardiola got rid of like Ronaldinho and Deco and Samuel Eto and brought in like Messi, Xavi, and Iniesta. That's the one example I can think of. And it doesn't really count because you had the best player of all time and probably like the two of the players in the top ten of all time who could come in to replace them, which is not a luxury that really anyone else in football history has yeah. had. Um, but, but I mean, like he still had like Puyol and Valdez and. Um you know, Gerard Piquet and, and he still had a bunch of like really key, like Jordi Alba, really key players. Maybe Jordi Alba came later. Alba and Piquet, I think of, were newer ones, but, but I take your point. Um, you know, I, I it's, it's a funny, it's a funny um, example. Um, but, but I think, I think well, Barca I, I, did I, 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 I gave it, but I don't, I don't think it counts. I, I don't think it counts. I think it's like the messy <laughs> <laughs> did, 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 like negates it. <laughs> Do you think that if Southampton had Messi, they'd still be going down? Because I don't. <laughs> you know, pr- probably not. <laughs> maybe toss up, but maybe no. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like I feel like Southampton. May, I think I maybe went off a little bit too hard on Southampton there, but but I do broadly feel like they sold and got or got rid of one too many important, older, influential players. Yeah, I and know, I think I... it shows. I think it shows, and Nathan Jones was not the man to to like steady the ship. <laughs> no, he most certainly was not, uh, and nor do I think was was uh, Yank Lampard. But that was sort of a weird. That seems to have now been like confirmed. It's not happening. So that was a really weird sort of like. Imagine looking at a guy who has just been sacked for not getting the results and thinking, "Yeah, there's the man to save our season." <laughs> <laughs> well, well. Free agent, you say? <laughs> Honestly, it's it's literally just it's it's like the equivalent of like watching someone drop food on the floor and being like, "Hmm, free for Zoidberg." <laughs> I mean, I I also feel like anytime anytime a like a top top player leaves on a free, at least part of me is like, why is he allowed to leave? And we're talking like mm. players that are doing well. Someone like. Um, was David Alaba, did he go for free to Real Madrid? He did, yeah. Even him, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why have you? Why are you allowed to go? Um, let alone someone who, who like has done the statistical equivalent managerially of like not scoring since, since September. Um, so, yeah, I, I just feel like it would have been, it would have been hilarious in that they would have sealed their fate with with some sort of like twist of their of their hat of their wrist um with like a pirouette of like yeah we're going down and we're going to go down hard um but beyond that i think uh probably for the best that southampton aren't going to be uh, picking up jesse march i also wonder and it's not one that we'll see if it's true but i wonder if they had got jesse marsh in and he had not been able to sort of work miracles there would he have been the only manager in Premier League history to manage two teams that got relegated in the same season? Surely, right? I mean, I'm looking into this, but but surely. Hmm. I, well, like I feel like every other week we go, oh yeah, something to look into for next week. And we should never bring it up again. Um, <laughs> a little maybe brain this week will be different. Maybe not. <laughs> Well, that's probably a great place to end it for this, Rupert. A uh, great place to end it for this week, rather, Rupert. Um, good to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone at home for listening. We will catch you next time. And best of luck to Southampton and Leeds fans everywhere. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.
Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.